Let's pray as we come to chapters 20 and 21 of Genesis this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, be with us now for these moments as we think about your word together. We ask that as we see your grace and your faithfulness once again this morning, uh, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would lift us up, that we might continue to walk this journey to life, which is the journey of faith, with our great confidence in you and overflowing with your grace to the world. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Well, last night we were watching a movie and some of uh, the New York scenery got us talking and looking at photos from our big trip that feels like a millennia ago and uh, dreaming of the day when one day we'll be able to leave our home and maybe even the country to travel once again. And uh, one of the, the shots I stumbled across last night was this aggravatingly off-centre shot of the Empire State Building. Uh, And the reason why it's so badly framed is that when you're standing in front of a building of that magnitude, you've got to make decisions. Am I willing to lie down on West 34th Street to actually get the whole building in frame, or do I need to creatively flip the camera and angle it up and try to have any hope of getting the whole thing in the shot without looking like a goose in the process. Uh, And that's why my photo is so bad. But with a building of that size, you can see how big it is from just about anywhere in the city. But it's another thing to stand right under it and to then walk around it and to go inside and to go up to the very top and to look down from it and to look around and out from it. As you look from a distance and up close and inside and on top of and down from, as you get all those different angles and aspects, it doesn't make the vastness of the building smaller, it expands it and gives it texture and shape to your experience of it. And that's what's happening for us, I feel, as we're journeying with Abraham through the journey to life, which is the journey of faith. We're going back thousands of years and we're seeing the same God who is still faithful and gracious today at work in his world by his word and spirit to bring about his purposes for his people And we're seeing his grace and his faithfulness week after week after week. We're seeing it up close in the lives of individual people. We're seeing it through the long lens across decades of their lives and now down through thousands of years. We're seeing it intimately up close in moments of kindness and provision. We're seeing it from the the heights and the beauty and attractiveness of people faithfully following and taking God at his word. We're seeing the brightness and beauty of God's grace and his faithfulness against the contrasting pit of disobedience and sinfulness. We're seeing the sights and sounds of the eternal God making mouth-watering promises of his blessing and grace that would be for all the world and for every generation. And so as we're doing that, God's grace and faithfulness shouldn't be becoming smaller and smaller and the size that, you know, can fit in your back pocket. 
conveniently, but we should be gaining depth of perception and seeing all the texture and the grounding that God's grace and his faithfulness gives to the Christian life and the motivation that God's grace and faithfulness should give to the Christian life and the evidence that we have that keeps stacking up week on week of why we should trust and obey the gracious and faithful God as his people today. Uh, A friend reminded me on Friday that one good thing to do in a season that we're in is to slow right down and to seek to memorise God's promises in his word. And if you wanted to slow right down and to to gain some perspective and some refreshment by memorising God's word, one place to start would be Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, which says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So as we come then to Genesis 20 and 21, I want us to think today, what does it look like as we look through the lens of Abraham and his journey to life? What does it look like to live by grace through faith? And how do our actions put on display to the world the saving grace of God and faith in that grace? Well, in these chapters, chapters 20 and 21, we have two bookends of Abraham dealing with Abimelech, king of Gerar, as he travels around the northern fringes of the promised land. And in between those two contrasting encounters with Abraham and Abimelech, we have the birth of Isaac, finally, and the sending away of Hagar and Ishmael. And so as we think about what does it look like to live by grace through faith, I want us to see three things, three examples, as it were, that Abraham stumbles with fear, that Sarah and Abraham delight by faith, delight in grace, sorry, and Abraham is gracious by faith. There's the three points on the screen. Stumbling with fear, delighting in grace, gracious by faith. Let's have a look at stumbling with fear in chapter 20. It's our opening encounter with Abimelech and Abraham. He stumbles again as he walks by fear instead of by faith. And once again, as he did back in Egypt, Abraham presents Sarah as his sister And she's taken away into the harem of a foreign king. And as happens so often in the Bible and in our own lives, as sin and fear get in the way, as we stumble in the journey to life, which is the journey of faith, by letting fear get in the way, by letting sin get in the way, the only hope becomes for God to get involved. 
which he does time and time again. Thank the Lord. And so in verse 3, we see two words that turn up so many times in the Bible at just the right time. Two great words that are repeated so often when we see God's grace at work. Verse 3, but God. When fear and sin make us stumble and get in the way of walking by faith in the journey to life, God graciously gets involved. But God. God gets involved. He goes and deals with the issue. He warns Abimelech of what's really happening. And after the episode of horror and judgment and total depravity in Sodom and Gomorrah that we saw last week, Maybe we're expecting, as Abraham was obviously expecting, that every encounter with every person outside of the, the covenant community of God's promises will be as horrendous and as sinful as possible. But Abimelech pleads his case. Hang on a second. I acted in good faith. I didn't know that Sarah was Abraham's wife and not his sister. I've done this with a clear conscience, he says, and with clean hands. This is on Abraham, this isn't on me, Abimelech pleads rightly. And it's a good reminder, isn't it, that just because humanity is totally depraved, which we are, it doesn't mean that every person in every situation will be as sin as they possibly can be. So you want to say to Abraham, just as you want to say to us, as we engage with people outside of the covenant community of God's promises, you need to walk by faith and not by fear. And it's interesting here that the pagan king acts with more integrity than Abraham, the man of faith. And so how does Abraham explain it? What's his reason for doing this and stumbling by fear once again? Have a look at verse 9 of chapter 20 with me. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What's your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. He's acting out of fear and suspicion of those around him. And can you blame him? My first instinct is to go, Abraham, you doofus. You're doing it again. But can you blame him? He's totally outnumbered. He's totally outmuscled. He's a stranger in the land. He has no secure place, no bargaining position. When he looks at the situation outside of God's promises and outside of God's sovereign care, it makes total sense that he needs to fearfully scheme in order to survive. But what he should know by now, what we should know by now, 
is that he's not outside of God's promises. And he's not outside of God's sovereign care. And so he doesn't need to fearfully scheme to get by. He needs to walk by faith and not by sight. Notice when he's explaining himself, he doesn't own his own fear and suspicion. He blames. God made me wander. God put me in this dicey situation in the first place. He blames and he manipulates. He says to Sarah, if you love me, you'll go along with my dodgy plan. Abraham again was slipping back to live by sight. What was in front of him, he assumed, was hostile and dangerous. Instead of living by faith, that God has made promises and will be faithful and will be gracious and will be powerfully sovereign in all of it. But it turns out in this situation, Abimelech was more honourable than the recipient of God's promises and the object of God's blessing. And so where do you see grace and kindness in this first encounter? You don't see grace and kindness from Abraham, you see fear and suspicion. Where's the grace and the kindness? It's from Abimelech, a pagan king who fears God more than Abraham in this moment. He's the one who is generous to Abraham and Sarah, who wants to act uprightly when he doesn't have to. Think about Abraham, what he has done in this situation and how it reflects on the promise-making God in whose care Abraham resides and whose glory Abraham is meant to reflect and bring blessing to the nations around him. Instead, what Abraham communicates by operating with fear and suspicion is that I don't know if I can trust God actually. That maybe God is disinterested and distant. Maybe God is not powerful and sovereign. Maybe God isn't gracious and faithful after all. And I wonder if we can inadvertently operate with fear and suspicion when it comes to the people around us feeling outnumbered feeling small and significant, feeling powerless and obsolete. And we inadvertently communicate to people around us that God isn't great and he isn't good, that he's not powerful and he's not sovereign, that he's not faithful and he can't be trusted. When we slip back into walking by sight, instead of by faith. Abraham, as hopefully he learns the lesson, is then left, having received the grace and kindness of Abimelech, is left to bless Abimelech and pray for his offspring, which must have felt very awkward, mustn't it? you ever prayed those kinds of prayers that kind of come out 
like a, a fur ball that you kind of choke on just a little bit, even as you seek to articulate them, having waited 25 years, having not seen the fulfilment of God's promises and the gift of a child, Abraham has to pray for Abimelech, verse 17, and his wife and his female slaves so they could have children again since the Lord had kept the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. And it raises the question of how much longer will Abraham and Sarah have to wait for God to keep his word, to fulfil his promise, to give them their own biological heir, the heir of promise, the child through whom many nations would come, the one through whom the Messiah would come, the family through whom God would restore the world. Well, we don't have to wait long because it happens in the very next verse. So the second thing we see is Abraham and Sarah delighting in grace through faith. Have a look at chapter 21, verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Who would have said it? Well, the verses themselves tell us, of course, God had said it. Verse 1, as he had said. Verse 1, as he had promised. Verse 2, at the very time he had promised. Verse 4, as God commanded. The God who speaks and makes promises, keeps his word, blesses the objects of his grace, gracious affection and provides the son of promise. It's interesting, isn't it? We've been waiting for so long. Not as long as Abraham and Sarah who waited 25 years. But we've been waiting since chapter 12. And after everything we've been through, you'd think there'd be a little bit more fanfare with the birth of Isaac. No heavenly announcements, no cosmic explosions. But great delight in God's grace, received by faith. The laughter of Abraham in chapter 17, the laughter of Sarah in chapter 18, that was disbelieving, that was incredulous. When God keeps his word, they name their son Isaac, which means laughter, as one writer puts it, heaven has smiled 
and joy has come to the camp of God's people. Their hearts are full of the joy. The joy that comes, the delight that comes through faith in God's gracious promises. Receiving God's gracious promise by faith leads to delight in his promises. Rejoicing in his faithfulness and his loving kindness. That is the posture of the Christian life. As we patiently wait, yet knowing we are recipients of the promises of God, knowing that he is gracious and he is faithful, we delight in his grace and kindness. Not in a way that covers over the the difficulties of life, the perplexity of, of waiting with great patience as Abraham and Sarah had, not in a way that pretends that there's no stumbling in the darkness with disobedience along the way, but a deep joy that comes from knowing our lives and our futures, our past and our present are in the hands of a gracious and faithful God and so we can delight. Our hearts can rest and be satisfied in Him despite the delays, despite the temptations to despair. We can delight in His grace as Abraham and Sarah did, seeing that God is faithful and He is gracious. Well, between verses 7 and 8, there's three years that pass and that initial laughter takes a nasty turn. In verse 9, the joy and the laughter of the camp is turned to mocking as Ishmael and Isaac, the teenagers, it appears, would be clashing. Sarah sees in whatever it is that's taking place a threat to the future of Isaac and his place in God's promises as heir, uh, as heir of the family, and Ishmael and Hagar are sent away. Abraham is grieved as his 16-year-old son Ishmael and Ishmael's mother Hagar are sent away from the covenant community in order to protect Isaac, the child of promise. But again, we see God's grace at work. We see his sovereign care demonstrated as God graciously promises once again to be with Hagar and Ishmael, that he sovereignly provides for them. And the verbs we see of God once again are so familiar that he sees and he hears them that he is close by, and verse 20, God was with the boy as he grew up. It's fascinating, isn't it, that in the midst of all this mess that's come about by disobedience and fear from Abraham, God kind of pulls together to somehow keep working out his purposes and displaying his grace and his faithfulness to his people. The old Anglican theologian Griffith Thomas wrote it like this. He says, God was graciously addressing the self-centered mess of Abraham and Sarah 
as he takes up the tangled threads of his servant's life and weaves them together in his, divine, his own divine pattern and overruling everything for good. And as you think about how we might stumble with fear instead of walking by faith, as we think about the challenge of delighting in God's grace in the midst of delays, as we long for His promises, as we long for that renewed and perfect future in His eternal kingdom, as we long for the Lord Jesus to to set all things right, knowing that He is risen and He is reigning, that He can be trusted and He continues to pour out His grace into our hearts by His Holy Spirit. We can trust that God graciously picks up the tangled threads of our own lives as He graciously includes us in his promises and his sovereign purposes, overruling all things for our good, even while we wait. And as the recipients of God's gracious promises, walking by faith instead of fear, Abraham then finally gives us a model of being gracious through faith in his second encounter with Abimelech where we see grace overflows as he demonstrates his trust in God. Free from suspicion and free from the fear, he displays grace through faith by graciously living, not worried about his own safety and his own provision but engaging with this foreign and pagan king in a way that shows kindness and generosity. The one who has less gives to the one who has more because he knows he is graciously provided for by the sovereign God who is overruling all things for the good of those who love him. So chapter 21, verse 22, at that time Abimelech And Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness that I showed to you earlier. And Abraham does. They make a treaty, he brings sheep and cattle, he gives extra to Abimelech. He says, accept these extra gifts as evidence of what I have done. And there he calls upon the name of the Lord, staying in the land of the Philistines, ding, 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 continuing to live in enemy territory, continuing to trust that God is gracious and he is faithful and that even with much around that he can see that you should be 
rightly fearful and suspicious of. He can delight in God's grace that he has received through faith. And he can then be gracious even to his enemies with his confidence in God and what God graciously and faithfully provides. Well, what does this do for us? It made me think during the week, I wonder if I am too fearful and suspicious of people around me. Instead of being gracious as the recipient of grace in our Lord Jesus. It made me think as I live by faith in God's grace, am I being so gracious to those around me that they can see that I'm living in grace through faith? And so it made me ask some hard questions. Am I quicker to complain about my circumstances than to give thanks for what I know I've received? Do I find it easier to see the hard things and, than to see the gracious things? Am I, to, am I slower to give thinking that I have less than I am to receive, fearfully holding on to what I have instead of graciously letting go for the sake of others, to demonstrate that I have received everything by grace and that nothing is mine anyway. And I can let go of the things of this world, trusting that in Jesus I have all that I need. Do I talk more about the hardness of life and less about the goodness of God. As I seek to delight in his grace and overflow with graciousness in response to what he has done. And here's the thing, to suggest that we should speak more about the goodness of God and less about the hardness of life it might sound at first like a bit of a gloss, like a bit of a let's sweep the hard things under the carpet, let's fake it till you make it and pretend that things are okay, better than they really are. It might sound like a Christian life that's full of misdirection and make-believe. But let me ask you, is it not true that God's goodness and his grace to his world and especially to his people in the Lord Jesus. Is it not true that God's goodness and grace is way bigger than life's hardness? Does Jesus not swallow up death in victory? Does the cross not deal with my sin and give me complete forgiveness and justification before God? Is the perfection of his new and renewed creation longer lasting and more deeply satisfying than the temporary trials that I might face in the hardness of this life? Is that not true? Jesus 
Surely from the intimate close-ups and the wide-angle lens of history and from the heights of God's promises and from the perspective of the cross and the empty tomb, I can see God's grace and his faithfulness with enough, enough texture, with enough clarity, with enough richness and depth that I can confidently stand on it no matter what things I face in this world and, the, and see that the goodness of God is bigger than the hardness of life. And because of that, as I seek to live by faith and not by sight and walk by faith and not by fear, I won't hold on to my life and my things with fear and suspicion and treat people as if they are threats and as if they are enemies but will overflow with the same kind of kindness and grace that I have received from the hands of a faithful and loving God. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, to overflow with his grace to a watching world that needs God's people to walk by faith in grace and to overflow with that same kindness that people might see and might know the goodness of our great God. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to be people who see your goodness and your greatness, who know that you have poured out your grace into our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we would receive it by faith and that we would then reflect to the world not fear and suspicion but graciousness and kindness that comes from knowing you. We ask that you would do this for us for Jesus' sake. Amen.